one year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I almost tried trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money handling fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're gonna set traps, like no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the fur boom. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Trappers love game trappers in a positive light. I'm gonna ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. The structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers and ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. Alright, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because we're working ahead of time to build big traffic. If you got very much the same characters, you got bog traffic. They start talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get any better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like a sheer. You better edit this part out. Yeah, we better. Back in the first shed. This is Traffic Today. Jeremiah Wood here. Thank you guys for listening in. We're brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K A A T Z com. Cotsboros has what you need to get going on the trap line. They have traps, snares, baits, lures, books, DVDs, and all kinds of other supplies. Check them out at Cotsboros.com. We're brought to you by OnX Maps. Use your phone as a GPS on the trap line. Mark the trap locations. Run tracks. Check out the latest aerial imagery to scout for places to trap and routes to run and get landowner information, figure out who owns the land on those places that look like pretty hot spots to set traps and to go in and set up. Um, You can figure that all out at uh, the Onyx app and get their information, get their contact, go visit them, see if you can get permission. Be surprised how many people are willing to allow people on their land to trap, especially if they have issues with uh, with livestock having problems, predators or beavers flooding their ponds or their fields, um, it's a uh, yeah it 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 can be the beginnings of a very good relationship if you can uh, develop those friendships with farmers and landowners and uh, set up a bunch of trapping ground and help them out while you're able to grab some more ground. So check out Onyx, and we're brought to you by Moyle Mink and Tannery. Where are you going to get your fur tan this year? Are you going to get your fur tan? What are you going to do with your fur? Are you going to you going to send it to auction? Um, we we see there there is a little bit of hint of an uptick in the market, but it's still rock bottom. Um, so I mean I think it's a really always a good idea to hedge your bets and to uh, look at a, a variety of different markets. Now if you're not selling fur to you know to pay some gas money and put a little extra in your pocket and you you're just out there catching a few furs and you want to keep those uh, and just kind of preserve those memories you got to get that fur tanned hang it up on the wall make yourself a pair of mitts make yourself a hat just uh, all kinds of different things you can do with fur it's such an incredible product and moil is the place to go to get a tan they provide excellent service it's such a uh, quality product that that tanned fur that comes back it's unbelievable how clean and and soft and pliable it is it's just a, just awesome 
go to moyle.net, M-O-Y-L-E.net, and use the customer portal. You can go ahead and input all your information there, print off uh, labels, and ship your fur out to Moyle, and uh, they'll get it back to you. And and you're, I think you're going to be real happy with it. And and you could also look at, you know, a lot of us are looking at sending large shipments of fur. And they have really good quantity discounts. So we're looking at shipping large amounts to try and sell as uh, tanned fur. And if you're interested, I have a bunch of uh, tanned fur that just got back from Moyle. And it's available for sale on trappingtodaystore.com. So take a look at that as well if you want to see an example of, of what those tanned pelts uh, look like when they come back. All right, so this week we are going to get into a little bit more on the fur market. In last week's episode, I talked about fur prices and sort of the specific news related to the current status of the fur market and what we probably can expect to see for prices for individual species and Uh, in different parts of the country. I went over some of the latest auction results for the different state trapper associations and uh, maybe speculated a little bit about the future, but I didn't get into the details. In this episode, I actually recorded this when I sit down, when I was still sitting down after I finished up that, uh, that update last week, and I went into a bunch of tables and figures and graphs and everything that I pulled together to research for the fur market update. And I actually did a YouTube video on the same thing. And I wrote a post on trapping today about the, the specific fur prices. And I'm, I am working on another post about this, this long-term stuff that's going on. But it, it was really eye-opening for me when I did a bunch of this research. And it was something that was always, it's, it's, all, it's all right there in front of us to, to look at. But um, it's not very often that we sit down and take the time to put it all together and put, put the pieces together and try to formulate an opinion on what the future of the fur market looks like. And so that's what I'm going to do tonight. And hopefully you guys can get a little bit of information from it. I'm not an expert. I could be completely wrong about this stuff, but I, I think that... Uh, that some of the things I'm going to talk about you're going to find pretty interesting and uh, you can use that info to maybe form some of your own conclusions. So let's get into the macroeconomic uh, implications and the future of the fur market. So recently we talked about fur prices, recent fur auction results, and the averages and different prices received for different species throughout the country. And we know we have been in a low period of the fur market for a very long time. And it appears that we're just kind of maybe coming out of this trough that we've been in for several years that was extended for an additional year because of the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, kind of throwing the the supply chain out of whack and not allowing for these uh, fur major fur auctions to even take place. So there's been a lot of changes in the market as a result of that. Also, just the worldwide economies were thrown off balance and a lot of high unemployment, uh, huge government deficits, and all kinds of other economic issues. Everything kind of ground to a halt. So the fur market was in a tough place to begin with, and this just uh, kind of exacerbated that situation, and we're, we're kind of... Uh, hopefully starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel finally a year after i i had thought that that we were um, going to start to recover so as you know i mean a lot of you guys are are trappers that 
you you may or may not sell a lot of fur. You may or may not catch huge amounts of fur. There is a small proportion of trappers in, in the overall community that do rely on selling fur for uh, a portion of their income. And for them, th- this is very, very important. For others, this may mean a difference between buying some extra traps at the end of the season or being able to buy more supplies and uh, maybe putting gas in the truck, you know, and, and being able to spend more time outdoors on, on the trap line. So fur prices are something that we all want information on. We're all kind of curious about whether or not we sell a whole lot of fur <clears throat> and uh, just, just kind of gives us an idea of, of where we are at with demand. Now, I want to take the opportunity to go take more of a deep dive, like I had mentioned before, of a, a broader look at the overall fur market and really more specifically a look at the economics around the the countries that are purchasing the majority of the fur and how that uh, is looking, you know, in terms of long-term trends. So is the fur market dead? I did a podcast episode Oh, sometime several months back about the fur market is dead. It was kind of semi-joking, but but really the fur market, uh, a lot of people think it won't ever recover from, um, from, from this recent drop. And to some extent, there may unfortunately be a little bit of truth to that. I think the fur market will never go away, but the market is absolutely changing. There's no question about that. And I'll be honest, I came into this with... Uh, some ideas on what was going on and I started looking at data and charts and you know you always whether you like it or not we're all humans and we all kind of have our own little lens with with which we see the world and I probably had some biases behind what you know when I looked at the data trying to maybe subconsciously find some things that correlated well with what I believed was going on but there was just too much information and data that suggested otherwise, and so I actually hinted at this previously. I, I, I my long-term view on the market has actually kind of changed a little bit, and we'll discuss that a little bit in more detail here as we as we talk about the economic factors. So, we know there are uh, the fur market's huge. The worldwide global market is the last numbers that I have was approximately made up by. 80% ranch fur, which is primarily mink and fox, although there are, are other species. Those are the, the predominant ones. And 20% wild fur. So wild fur already at the beginning is a, a small portion of the overall market. So as a result, the since the, the fur farm industry kind of got its start, and, and I don't I want to say it was probably sometime back in the 30s and 40s when it really started to take off and scale up to where ranch fur kind of dwarfed wild fur. And and that did coincide with some drops in prices. But since then, wild fur has kind of followed ranch fur. So whatever the trends are, when ranch fur is generally a superior product for the end consumer for the primary reason that it's produced, it's more uniform it's uh, also animals are bred to have uh, better quality pelts in, in many cases, um, <clears throat> the, the certain colors that the market desires and the sizes that work for, for what the market has, has adapted to and, and has produced over the years. So the, the, um, 
what what that results in is wild fur is it's very unique in many cases but for like mass large scale production of fur items ranch fur is the go-to item and wild fur is kind of the substitute so if ranch fur gets really expensive then uh, furriers people who are buying may start to look at wild fur for alternatives so ranch mink gets really expensive maybe they'll look at wild mink and see what they can get those for and the hurdles that they'll have to go through those will require more pelts they gotta maybe uh, do some dyeing work to get the right colors and, and all of that and match up enough pelts to to have a uniform group of a certain size so th- there's that to consider they may consider substituting with something like muskrat so they'll use wild muskrat instead of ranch mink for certain items and so that goes on all the time but when wild when ranch fur prices are really cheap they can pick up all the ranch fur that they want and the wild fur is kind of just left in the dust and there's only small scale uh, buyers and certain niche uh, markets that that are so kind of supporting those prices for wild fur so like any other commodity ranch fur prices fluctuate based on the factors of supply and demand um, very standard demand goes up price goes up because supply is limited uh, supply it, ranchers increase their supply in order to take advantage of the high prices and all of a sudden supply goes up and the supply is more than what is more than adequate to meet demand and prices go down and you have an oversupply situation and then far ranchers are losing money and so they slow down production and as the supply kind of slows down guess what happens prices come back up so that's kind of the the general idea of how this whole supply and demand interplay works but there are so many other factors going on at the same time that can kind of complicate this and make it more difficult to understand. And you have the up and down of, of supply and demand, which fluctuates usually on a matter of two years, three years, four years, whatever, because you can't, uh, the industry cannot immediately increase supply. These are animals. Um, they are breeding animals that have a certain amount of young per year they can only breed a certain amount of times in a given period and so in order to produce more you have to you know biology is at play here and so it takes time there's a lag and so you always kind of have this overshooting and undershooting and um, as a result the the market is cyclical now in addition to those uh, cycles those ups and downs in the market you also have like broad overarching themes that are going on in the markets that are are kind of influencing supply and demand on a more of a a longer time scale and these are what i'm kind of referring to as the macroeconomic factors within the fur market so the the big uh, change in the fur market over the last hundred years has been the shift from being a domestic market where fur was produced in the United States and it was consumed in the United States and if you look back at the old movies in the 1930s and 40s everybody was wearing fur in the movies well fur was a very fashionable item and it was it was in colder cities it was very uh, utilitarian it was it was nice it kept you warm and it was also pretty cool and people liked it well that changed over time in society it, fur kind of fell out of fashion in most of society and so the market moved elsewhere. 
Now, the U.S. still is has produced fur, you know, every year, forever, since the old mountain man days. So the fur is still being produced, but it's being consumed elsewhere. And the overall uh, macroeconomic factor has been the rise of developing nations uh, at the same time as the, the kind of the uh, decline in fur use in the developed nations like the United States and uh, the United Kingdom and, and other countries there in Western Europe. The rise in China has been the big economic factor that is influencing everything in our everyday lives. It influences the cost of goods, which has gone down substantially. It influences the uh, the products that we use. It influences the products that we sell. And uh, China is has been a major producer. They they basically make it possible for us to buy almost everything that you can buy at a Walmart and buy it cheaply, and so we can live better lives uh, and spend less money uh, for common everyday household items and have more disposable income to spend on other things that we like. At the same time, that has caused the loss of small businesses throughout the United States over a long time period. The mom and pop shops are almost all gone as a result. So there are definitely big trade-offs. With the rise in China was also uh, a rise in sort of a middle class that became consumers of a lot of items, and one of those items is fur. So the economy and the, the fur market is one of the large driving, overarching driving factors is demand for fur from China. You also have Russia, which is a country that has been around for a very long time, has not grown nearly as fast as China, um, has a lot of its own issues with uh, different political regimes back and forth and very a, a great deal of instability. But culturally, Russia has not changed from a fur-consuming country. It is generally a very cold country, and fur is very, very useful there. So, And, and it's also part of the fashion. It's what people wear. So Russia, it, it continues to be a major fur consumer. So, so those are the two big ones. You also have Italy, where fur is very fashionable still, and uh, Greece, uh, Korea, North or South Korea. North Korea is not has essentially no economy, but South Korea um, and and other several other small countries where fur is consumed, but in in lesser quantities. So we got supply and demand, the factors that affect these two major overlays of supply and demand are very uh, detailed, very um, complex, and can fluctuate substantially and are very difficult to understand uh, on, a, on a more a micro level. But let's give uh, take a stab at trying to better understand these factors. So factors of demand are primarily driven by uh, what allows consumers in China and Russia and the other fur-consuming countries uh, as a general rule, what allows those consumers to be able to purchase more fur? Okay, so we're not even talking about fashion, fur, fur fashion and whether fur is fashionable and whether they want to wear it or not. We're assuming they want to wear fur, but can they pay for it? Because there's a lot involved in the production supply chain of fur and it costs a lot of money. Well, overall underlying economic growth in those countries is a big indicator of whether they're going to be able to purchase fur.
whether people have money, they have jobs, and they can put food on the table and have a little extra spending money to buy fur hats and fur coats. The overall economy, economic growth, GDP in those countries are a big factor. Those things are kind of symbolized and and also further driven by things like the value of these uh, individual countries' currencies in relation to where they're purchasing the product. So if they're purchasing it from the United States or Canada, the value of their currency related in relation to the United States dollar or the Canadian dollar is going to play a big factor in how affordable fur is. And there are other drivers behind the, um, the overall ability to consume fur and the economic growth of the country. And one of those major drivers, of course, is the price of oil. So we'll get into those. We'll talk about the U.S. dollar, the uh, growth in Russia and China's economies, the uh, currency exchange rates, uh, overall consumer spending, or what we can think in terms of uh, what we can predict overall consumer spending is going to look like based on these factors. And and we'll, we'll talk oil prices, too. And then we'll get into supply and the major factors influencing supply. It's basically uh, whether mink and fox ranchers can produce fur and to a smaller extent what the wild harvest is going to look like. And that's uh, that's in response to prices, but it's also in response to a couple other things which we learned uh, a big lesson about when we got the COVID-19 pandemic and the issue with with calls of ranch mink. So we'll get into that and and we'll see if we can come up with any conclusions about what's going to go on more long-term in the fur market. I have a series of charts I'm going to try to navigate through here. Exhibits A through M, I guess. (laughs) And I'd love to share these with you guys, but I I pulled them from the net uh, from various sources and I don't have attribution or permission to share these so I don't really want to do too much in terms of of sharing things that might have uh, have rights attached to them get get in trouble over it but uh, any of these charts you can look up for yourself and I don't know maybe I may or may not try to find a way to share them with you but uh, we're going to go through and I'm just kind of try to explain them to you and in what the chart is explaining and what the trend looks like and we'll start off the very first thing the U.S. dollar And so the value of the U.S. dollar is very important in terms of uh, making things uh, competitive price-wise. If the U.S. dollar is very strong, that means the dollar is worth a lot in terms of other currencies. And the the U.S. dollar index is basically a measure of the dollar against a basket of other currencies throughout the world. So the, the strong dollar means that it takes more of another country's money to buy things in U.S. dollars. And everything is kind of transacted in, for the most part in U.S. dollars worldwide. The dollar is the res- global reserve currency, they call it. So all of the banks and everything kind of transacts in U.S. dollars. And there's actually concern that that may go away over the next decade or so. And things might transition to a more global type of currency or a, a blockchain or People are talking about Bitcoin and all this other stuff, and or or countries having their own electronic currencies. There's concern about China getting away from using the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currencies and, and pegging their currency to something else. Uh, 
So that's all neither here nor there. What we what we need to know for fur prices or any other exports, a stronger dollar means our prices are less competitive. A weaker dollar means our prices are more attractive for other countries to buy items from the U.S. So the dollar has, <clears throat> I'm looking at a chart here from the, uh, the past year, the U.S. dollar, and 100 is basically like the standard middle of the road for the index. Um, and the dollar in March, April, and May was, was kind of roaming around 100. It was pretty standard, you know, uh, 1.00. And at, at the beginning of sometime in May, the dollar began, and possibly even in April, the dollar began a long, slow descent. A long, slow, steady descent to where the U.S. dollar index, uh, as of the point of this chart, was 91.63. So the dollar is at about 90 cents related to this basket of currencies. That means the dollar has lost about 10% of its purchasing power and potentially made our items 10% uh, more attractive to foreign um, countries, de depending on what their currency is. And we'll, we'll kind of transition into this. Uh, a weaker dollar generally means the U.S. economy isn't doing as well. I, I don't want to be too broad there. But for exports, it's a good thing. So for fur prices, it's a good thing, weaker dollar. The more important thing, though, is the dollar may be weak, but what if the country that's buying your fur has a currency that's even weaker and getting weaker than the dollar? So that's the big thing, the, the big index. And Kyle Kotz has mentioned this in the past on the podcast about the U.S. dollar to ruble conversion and the the rate of uh, the U.S. dollar to ruble rate is uh, is very very important in determining fur demand coming out of Russia. The ruble is essentially it's the Russian dollar, the Russian equivalent to the dollar, and at a certain level, fur just becomes any U.S. items are difficult for Russians to be able to afford when their currency is, is so uh, poorly valued related to U.S. dollars. So if you look, if you went back in, in terms of the, the U.S. dollar conversion to the, the dollar to ruble uh, relationship, there's a very interesting, compelling chart that shows how this has changed over time. And it is amazing. Essentially, you know, all currencies, in theory, all currencies go to zero because they're not backed by anything. The U.S. dollar used to be uh, backed by gold, meaning that uh, for every dollar that was paper, dollar that was printed and out there and being exchanged, there was some physical gold somewhere that represented the value of that dollar, and you could always trade that dollar in for gold at any time, for the most part. Uh, that went away. And so now the dollar is, like any other paper currency that has no backing, it is only worth what somebody thinks it's worth. Uh, all the way down to where it's just worth the paper it's printed on, the cost of printing it, which is essentially nothing. So it's very interesting to see how currencies fluctuate. And I, don't, I know very little about this. I've just kind of been learning more about economics. It's kind of like the last maybe two years, year, year to two years, I've been starting to learn more about the stock markets and learning about economies and how all this works. It's just kind of something that I've had a little bit of interest in and I have uh, 
learned quite a bit. It's been quite fascinating, to say the least. So the U.S. dollar to ruble conversion is demonstrating a long-term pattern of the U.S. dollar being stronger in relation to the ruble. The dollar is worth less than it was uh, any time in the past because of inflation. And that is what I mentioning about all currencies going to zero. It's a result of inflation. Um, money is printed. Uh, currencies are worth less over time. If you had $100 in at the turn of the last century, it was worth a lot, lot more than it is worth today, that same number. And that will continue until the end of whatever civilization is printing that money. However, it's happening much faster in Russia than it is in the United States. And when we go back to the fur boom days of what we call this mini fur boom in like 2012, 2013, kind of might have extended into 14 for some of us in the wild fur market. Looking back in those times, uh, there, the dollar-ruble conversion was between 30 and 35 rubles to the dollar. So in other words, it would take 30 to 35 rubles to equal one U.S. dollar. Today, that number, ready for it, 74.35. So something for Russians to buy our fur in a denominated, uh, say, a, a $10 raccoon priced in U.S. dollars, it may have cost them, it, back in the day, it cost them, what, 300 rubles? Now it costs them more than twice that much, almost two and a half times that much. So fur is essentially two and a half times as expensive. Now it's not completely because U.S. dollar has inflated a little bit as well, but that's that conversion rate is probably the best way to standardize that. Um, and what that means, and and this this is continuing to go up. It's continuing to go up. It just basically means the Russian the value of Russian money is going down. So they can they have a harder time. Fur is less affordable for them. And this ha went up starting around that 2014 period, 20 to 20, it, it really 2015 is when it happened. And that was around the time, if I remember right, we'll go through this in the future chart, but we had uh, an oil price crash at the time. Oil, oil was really, really high and oil crashed. Well, Russia is a major exporter of oil. They lost their their biggest export and suddenly their economy tanked and it hasn't recovered it's continued to get worse uh, from the looks of this in terms of u.s dollars so that is a, a very disturbing trend because at 74 rubles to the dollar something has to change for russians to be able to for most russians to be able to afford fur and to make fur uh, an attractive item for them to want to purchase Let's move on to the next chart. Now we talk, so we talked about U.S. dollar and the dollar-ruble conversion in terms of Russia. But what about China? Let's look. I want to go into China and Russia in terms of actual growth, economic growth in these two countries, and figure out whether this uh, this currency trend has something to do with overall economic growth and what we might uh, think about for uh, the China, Chinese economy. Because interestingly, we see a much different pattern there when you look at the Chinese yuan, which is their essentially their dollar, compared to the U.S. dollar. The, 
the dollar yuan yuan dollar conversion um, over the past uh, 20 let's see 5 10 15 years has gone from 8 Chinese yuan to a dollar all the way down to about 6 and right now it's six and a half Chinese yuan to a dollar and it's fluctuated around 2015 it started to go up meaning the Chinese dollar was less uh, was weaker related to the US dollar dropped dipped back down again came back up and it's dipping down r again right now so there are kind of diverging themes there with with the overall currencies. so let's look at some economic growth this uh, exhibit C is Chinese gross domestic product growth over the long term and this chart goes from 1992 to 2020 and it is GDP growth is basically how much bigger the economy is gross domestic product is sum of all um, everything that's produced in, in a country um, for that year so every year China has been growing and growing and growing for a long time we all know that this is the rate of that growth yeah, year to year so Chinese year-to-year -year growth from the early to mid 90s all the way to 2000 it was it was over 10 percent um, in the early to mid 90s then uh, around late 90s to early 2000s it dropped down to around seven to eight percent and it fluctuated bounced up and down there this is every year growth percentage growth so this is pretty fascinating this is unsustainably fast high growth uh, in 2002, it started to rise and went back to 10% as of 2004. It bounced around, up and down around 10% until like around 2006. Then it went all the way back up toward 15%, which it hit in 2008. We had the great financial crisis of 08 to into 09, and that number dropped all the way back down to around 6%. It bounced back up in around 2010 to 11%. And it has been, and this is what I've discussed in the in the past episodes about the Chinese economy slowing. It has been in a gradual slowing decline. So the the Chinese GDP is still growing, but the rate of growth has declined since 2010, and it's declined from uh, around 11 plus percent down to about six percent as of 2020. And as soon as the COVID-19 pandemic uh, took place that number shot directly down a vertical line down to a shrinkage of about six or seven percent but that bounced back up in the latest reading in in 2020 was 3.2 percent growth so China's back to growth I think it's the only country that's uh, reported positive GDP growth since the coronavirus pandemic began uh, which is interesting, but that growth is much slower. And if you look at the overall trajectory, China's growing, but the growth is slowing down. Looking at another chart, uh, quarter by quarter GDP growth, you see from 2010 to 2020, it's just a gradual steady decline from, like I said, over 10% to somewhere around 5 to 6%. What do we got next? We have... China's real gross domestic product growth from 1992 to 2020. So we looked at uh, GDP growth for just overall in, in overall Chinese uh, reported numbers. But if we index that to inflation or adjust that adjust 
for inflation, we get the the real growth. And uh, this is just a actually this is a this is a pretty short chart actually. It's showing it's showing essentially the same thing. Um, it does show this drop for the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and that looks like it was negative 6.8%, and then back up to uh, to 3.2, 4.9, and then it looks like getting up to maybe back to, to where it was before. But remember, when you have a massive drop like that, uh, this is year over year growth, and so you're just comparing things to the previous year. So when you have a massive drop, if you drop by 50%, you have to increase by 100% to get back where you started, right? You go from 6 to 3, 3 has to double to get back to 6. And so the, the percentages and the numbers can be a little bit deceiving uh, sometimes, but the take-home point of that is China's growth, China's still growing, but the growth is slowing. Now let's get back to Russia. We got this next figure, Exhibit E, I guess, <laughs> is uh, the Russia's gross domestic product in current prices, uh, from 1995 to 2025 in billion U.S. dollars. So this is in U.S. dollar terms. Uh, just I, I believe that's just nominal, average, the nominal number prices uh, reported. It looks like uh, this number has, uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s, it has grown and had a steady upward climb all the way to about 2012, and then a quick drop, and then another steady upward climb. So if you look at this chart, you think, wow, Russia's economy isn't doing too bad. The GDP, the, the products that they're producing is increasing uh, over time. But this uh, chart is not adjusted for inflation. So if we go to the next chart, we see Russia's real gross domestic product from 2009 to 2021. Uh, this is year over year compared to the previous year. And this tells a very interesting story. Um, from 09 to 21, so about a 10-year period, you had growth that started at negative 7.8%, and that was the Great Financial Crisis, bounced up 4.5%, 5%. Then the rate of growth went from 5% to 3%, to 1.8, to 0.7. In 2015, during the oil price crash, the economy, Russia's GDP, lost 2%, back up to almost even in 16 1.79 and 17, up 2.5%, 1.3%. Uh, COVID pandemic dropped 6.6%. And 2021 is predicted to be a growth of 4%. What you see here is a really bouncy um, growth rate in, in GDP and something that's pretty um, overall, the, the rate of change is not consistent. It's not steady. It's, it's not stable. Now, if we look at real GDP adjusted for inflation per capita in Russia from the late 80s to 2017, this shows an, a very interesting pattern as well, and it's more of a zoomed out view. Uh, this is per capita, so it's adjusted for, um, for population level as well. And what this shows is a per capita GDP from 89 through the mid to late 90s, essentially the late 90s, was a steady decline, a pretty substantial steady decline to um, $10,000 per person in Russia of GDP down to about 6000 so about a 40% decline. That was uh, kind of coincided with the fall of the Soviet Union, and Vladimir Putin took over around 2000 and that has been a steady upward 
uh, trend of GDP all the way up till about 2017. And of course, we've seen uh, a, a drop again more recently. But it, that's that's pretty interesting to see. There there is growth there, but Russia is basically not much further ahead than it was back 30 years ago. So this is a very slow, steady, un, pretty unstable, and not not a very fast growing economy. Now let's look, let's take things back to the U.S. Because I was just curious, I wanted to pull this up. Uh, what about U.S. Um, median household income in the United States? I, I was going to search for a GDP, but I honestly, I just, I was sidetracked with all these other charts. But I kind of wanted to see, I was looking at all these things, in, especially the charts in U.S. dollars, trying to figure out um, how much the U.S. Uh, economy in the U.S., the value of the U.S. dollar and all that has influenced uh, these these figures and these uh, GDP numbers for other countries. And I thought, well, let's see what the U.S. has done ho- household-wise. And this chart shows uh, median household income in the United States for the last 20 years. Starting about 2000, median household income was around 40 grand. And that today is around $66,000 approximately. Wow, 20 years we went from 40000 to 60000 We had an increase 50% of uh, median household income. That's awesome, right? Well, not so much. Because if you adjust for inflation, that 40000 number from 2000 was actually the equivalent of $62,000 in today's dollars. If you actually look at the inflation-adjusted chart of median household income in the U.S., we have not gone up much at all. We've gone from 62000 uh, all the way. It, the number, essentially, the first decade of the 2000s did not change. Uh, the great financial crisis, that number dropped pretty substantially, and it's been in a slow upward climb now. Uh, but it's really not much further ahead than, than it was 20 years ago. So basically, the U.S. is kind of just treading water as well. And because of inflation, the value of the dollar is going down. Um, now, of course, the value of other currencies is going down even more. Another chart about uh, from, from Russia, Russian GDP and billions of rubles adjusted for inflation. So if we take the U.S. dollar equation out of things, we see uh, what Russian real GDP is doing. And that same general time period from 2000 to this one goes to 2017, we see the Russian GDP... Uh, went in in billions of rubles, went from 7,000 billion rubles down to 2,500. So huge, huge problem there. This economy is not doing much at all. Finally, in terms of price charts for uh, for these economies, that's all we'll do for the the economic growth and all that. I wanted to go into oil prices because we know that oil prices are driving this Russian economy in a lot of ways, and oil uh, oil has just dramatically fluctuated in price over the past 20 years. So I have a West Texas Intermediate crude oil adjusted for inflation. Remember that this is adjusted for inflation from 2000 to 2020. And what we see is a steady increase from 2000 uh, to around 2008 from about adjusted $50 oil to $100 a barrel oil. 
Um, so essentially, inflation adjusted, the oil price doubled. Um, it really, the increase started in the invasion, the U.S. invasion of Iraq and uh, September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks. That number went, essentially oil doubled. Uh, oil took a dip um, around 07-ish, 06, 07. It went straight up from about seven, $65, $70 a barrel up to $160 plus a barrel. And that peak was right around the 08-09 financial crisis. And oil went from well over $150 a barrel and it crashed down back down to 50 So it crashed down in to a third of what it was. Now, we start to get into 2010 to 2015. And the reason I want to focus on that is uh, after the we're coming out of the great financial crisis, the housing crisis and all that, and we have the 11, 12, 13, remember the fur boom, when the fur prices went up, when China was doing well, when Russia had a bunch of money to spend. And what we notice is the oil prices were about $100 a barrel, and they were bouncing up between $100 and $120 a barrel all through that period of high fur prices. 2015 crash from uh, 110 or so back down to 50. Um, 2016 down around 30 or 40. Um, it went back up, hovered around 50, then up to 60, 70. COVID-19 oil just absolutely got obliterated. It went actually to a negative number uh, for a brief period of time in late 2020. And uh, for for a long time during COVID-19, oil was around 20 to $30 a barrel. And now oil's back up to over 60 as I record this. It's, it's more than doubled since that crash. So it has been a roller coaster ride for oil. Um, this is this all kind of plays into this big macro picture of the the economies of countries that buy our fur, and it has changed my outlook substantially. The rapid growth, and this is just my opinion. I could be wrong, and there could be a million other things that take place over the next few years that completely changed the picture. But from the data, from what we can see right now, and looking at what makes the most sense, is yes, oil's up. Oil's, oil's $60. That's great. Because Russia can export that oil uh, and get a little bit more income. But to get back to where the good days, the good times when they were buying a bunch of our fur, oil has to be almost double of what it is right now. So, so I don't see, and because the U.S. has, um, the shale boom has taken place in the western U.S., the fracking boom, and we have become an, basically um, a massive, massive, massive um, producer of oil and exporter of oil. It's been, it's been really unbelievable to see. And that's been great in terms of energy independence for the country, not so great in terms of some, some environmental uh, issues. But needless that, regardless of, of, of where you stand on all that, the fact is it, it may put a bit of a ceiling on oil prices because if oil gets back around $80, $90 a barrel, even at 60 the the U.S. fracking industry, I believe uh, the, the competitive producers have a production cost of around $40 a barrel. And the bigger companies that are, are more bloated, uh, they may be around 60 
So once you get above 40, the, the rigs come back on. And once you get above 60, the real growth uh, continues. And so as that price goes up, um, there is going to be more supply added on the market coming from the U.S. most likely. Uh, regulation it changes aside. And, and as a result, I don't know that we're going to see oil get back to $100 a barrel for quite a long time. We also have a lot of renewable energy that's coming online and, and uh, may replace oil uh, over the coming decades. So that's not good for Russia's economy. And if you look at the, the growth numbers, it really, it, I just, I can't see a situation where they become a major fur producer uh, anymore. Um, the, the oil would have to be double or some other part of their economy would have to be so strong uh, or the U.S. dollar would have to completely collapse to get back to where the ruble dollar is is back to a, a 30 to 35 level, and oil prices are high enough for them to purchase a lot of our uh, of our exports. The China figure, the China picture. I I just I they'll continue to grow. I really think they will, but I do not uh, see that uh, that boom getting back up to where they're 10 or 15 percent year over year uh, GDP growth it, it just it, like I said it isn't sustainable and there there may be something going on you know like Africa there's other nations that are in you know essentially third world nations that are going to be emerging um, and, and however none of them that I can think of are in cold climates where wearing fur it has an added utility not just fashion so good luck getting people in Africa to, to wear fur <laughs> to any great extent, uh, or Brazil or South America for that matter. So I, I don't know. I, I, I used to think that generally overall that uh, we were in an okay place with demand, and I don't see that anymore. I, I honestly, um, I, and, and, and I used to broadly just think, well, demand and supply, and I've, I've stated this even more recently that, you know, it's all about supply and demand, and they're probably both somewhat equal, or I don't know what they what roles they play. Uh, I'm starting to come to the conclusion that uh, supply is going to have a much greater impact on fur prices moving forward than demand. Uh, I think demand will be steady to decreasing, uh, and the, the real factor is going to be the supply on the market. And so let's get into supply because uh, the the fur industry has shrunk. There's a lot less fur on the market as a result of the lower prices. But uh, let's just get get an idea of, of what the prices have looked like for ranch fur and how supply has responded. I want to say this is Exhibit L. <laughs> it is Danish ranch fur prices for mink and chinchilla. We'll just focus on the mink. Uh, from 2014 to 2020, so basically from the last crash in fur prices. Uh, at the beginning of that crash, they were um, around 60, and I I want to say I'm gonna look this up as Deutschmarks that they uh, their currency is. Ah, no, that would be Germany. I think these are euros actually that that these prices are reported in. So looking at uh, euros uh, for 2014, mink price was worth 60, and during that decline, it dropped down to 40. Um, by 2015, it had gone back up to 50, 55, and then the big drop uh, between 15 and 16, that went down to 30, 
it hovered around 30 euros for a mink pelt from 2016 to 2018 and then the decline just continued all the way down to where today it's around 20 euros so what's that like maybe 25 dollars for a mink pelt and i can i think i can confidently say that is below the cost of production for most ranches and so they're losing money on every pelt that they sell so what would this do to supply well it makes sense that they're not going to produce a lot um, a couple other things going on that we'll talk about in terms of first supply but we'll go to the uh, last figure that I have here and it is the annual production of mink pelts and comparing Denmark and China and this is a very interesting chart it shows the the period of the little mini fur boom in 2012 uh, 13 14 and it all actually really shows the increase in production as a result of of this boom and the lag how that that production lagged the price drop it was it's very very interesting lagged the rise and it lagged the drop so from 2010 to 2019, if you look at Denmark's production, they really didn't change a whole lot. They slowly and steadily increased from about, oh, 12, um, looks like thir maybe 13, 14 million pelts up to like 18 million uh, through that period of high fur prices. They bounced around a little bit, but hovered around 17, 18 million from 2016 through 2018 after the prices had dropped. And then from 18 to 19, uh, again, before COVID, they dropped uh, down to around 12 or 13 million. And I suspect we would see uh, a much further drop even from, from then till, till today, the last two years. Now, that is a fairly steady, I mean, it's, it's, it's not too surprising for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is uh, a mature industry. Uh, there are no new mink farms in Denmark and it's actually being phased out I believe in uh, two or three years uh, last I'd heard that mink ranching will be illegal in Denmark uh, however they had a phased out approach and they actually have been pushing the dates back for that phase out so who knows they may even change uh, depending on politics and all that they they, that may be subject to change as well. But for the most part, no one's going to invest in producing additional pelts in an in industry where you know that you're at some point you're going to be forced to be out of business or move elsewhere. China doesn't have that problem. China, China's uh, estimated pelt production, and, and this is difficult to, I mean, these are stats coming out of China, which is very, it's very difficult to really get a, a good read on, but I'm going to just take some faith and, and assume that there's uh, some level of, of truth to this from the China Leather Industry Association. And they were around 20, a little over 20 million mink pelts in 2010. When the, the, the production steadily increased from 2010 to 2014, which was around uh, the time when those prices were, were dropping, from 20 million to 60 million and after the prices dropped the production went from 60 million back down to 20 million by 2018 and by 2019 it's 10 or 11 or 12 million that is just absolutely unbelievable uh, the, the change in supply supply of ranch making China essentially tripled and and then it got cut down to 25% uh, of what it was at its peak 
huge, huge fluctuation. And at the time, you know, a couple of years ago, this data was not available. I remember looking around for Chinese production numbers and nobody, nobody really had a clue. So it was, it's really informative to see how Chinese started producing a lot of their own pelts. And that had a massive impact on saturating the market and making, you know, essentially just causing the prices to crash when demand fell. So will that happen again? I, I, I don't think, I don't know that prices are going to get up high enough to incentivize that production. But it's very obvious that as of right now, they can increase uh, relatively rapidly. Uh, they can increase production. Now, um, that was a relatively new thing. A lot of Chinese, you know, these are Chinese mink farmers had no experience. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. and Canadian producers and Denmark and other places have have been in the business for decades and decades and decades. They have seen the rises and falls. They, they know not to, you know, quote, triple your production during a little uh, short period of rising prices because you may get hit really hard. You will be sure to get hit hard on the downtrend. So uh, they may have been burned. A lot of people have been burned from this and, and may be a lot less excited about increasing production in, even if you see a modest rise in prices. So it, that, that's all to say that I think supply is going to be a stronger driver of the fur market in coming years than demand. And um, the things that, that are affecting supply can be very unpredictable because the, the COVID-19 epidemic has shown us that just about anything that can happen and even, you know, expect kind of inspect the unexpected. This was, this came out of nowhere where um, the COVID-19 was detected and several different strains of COVID that was not in humans was, was detected in mink in these different mink ranches. Denmark actually uh, ordered the culling of, I think they, they said there was about 17 million. And uh, there were other places that, that lost mink and were culling mink uh, in, throughout, throughout the world. So that all kind of adds up and, and is another factor that's affecting the supply. The estimated uh, global mink pelts that were, were available in the global market was this number was around 87 million globally that just shows how huge china's contribution was to that and that number that was in 2014 during that that high period where we had the little fur boom that number estimated right now from the numbers that that i've seen is about 45 million so a little over uh, actually right about half of what it was in 2014 in terms of supply so supply is definitely down that's gonna leave a floor on prices demand is 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 lower than what it was uh, the however the even though the demand has kind of been a, in a long-term slow decline and it hit this massive crash due to covid as things reopen uh, post covid we get the vaccine businesses start to open back up uh, china and i think most places in china are wide open for business um, and the, the one of the biggest problems is they can't hold in-person auctions. So Saga Furs in Denmark uh, hasn't been able to hold it. The, their auctions, like I mentioned before, have been online. 
for Harvester's auction for wild fur in North America has been online only. And so there hasn't been an opportunity for any auctions to really take place in, in a traditional setting where people can actually look at the fur they're going to buy. When that happens, I think we're going to see a big bump in fur prices temporarily. But I don't think we're going to see the, the major increase. I think that's going to be kind of making up for lost time, a little catch up, filling some some uh, inventory orders, uh, stuff that has is being cleared out on the shelves right now as demand is starting to pick back up. So we're going to see a bump, but long term, and this that's what this whole episode was about, is the long term macro in the fur market. I honestly, I think... I, I think it's going to be driven more by supply than by demand. And I think we, um, I don't know as we're going to see any sustained increase in fur prices from from what we've had over, over since the, the 2014 decline, 2015 decline. Uh, I don't know. Anything could happen. But overall, I, I don't see the market um, being what it was. I think that looking back that period of time was was very unique and i don't see those economic factors lining up in the way they did in 2013 2014 uh in it for a very long time so that's just my opinion you never know anything could happen but i really think that uh, we need to to continue to think of ways to market our fur locally fur that we produce to find small niche markets uh, create things um develop uh, develop outlets for fur and uses for fur because we know even if the fur market's dead animals need to be harvested they will continue to be harvested and we don't want to waste that it's it's a shame to see uh, fur go to waste so um, moving forward I, I really think that is going to be a big part of our future as fur producers I hope the market comes back I think it will to a certain extent uh, I don't think we'll see the the big boom that we saw before uh, but we may see small little bumps uh, we may see some bounces and uh, and let's try to take advantage of those and keep on talking trapping keep on thinking trapping and i'll try to keep you up to speed on any other developments in the market as they occur take care guys that is it for tonight's episode i hope you guys enjoyed that and coming up in the next couple of weeks we have a lot of really good interview stuff to get through so I'm excited about it I think that you will be too so hope that gives everybody kind of an idea of where we're at in the fur market we'll try to keep you up to date as things proceed but I don't think we're going to get a lot of really new information anytime soon at least not until uh, the the April auction for harvesters but anyway until then we'll just keep on trapping and remember Cots Bros is in the market for glands, skunk essence, and beaver caster. So you have an opportunity, even though fur prices are pretty low, to make a little extra money on that those animals that you catch. So they're paying $80 a pound for fully dried beaver caster, and they, they are buying uh, red fox glands, $150 a gallon. If you can pick up five gallons or more if you're one of those guys in Pennsylvania or you know some of those trappers that put up big numbers of red fox um, they can they will pay a premium for that as well they want bobcat glands gray fox glands badger otter mink 
and muskrat skunk essence paying $18 an ounce. So, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. Check them out, cotsbros.com, and go to the About section and click on Blog, and you're going to see that uh, update on the uh, what they're looking for and what the prices are that, that they're paying. So check them out. Thanks, Cotsbros, for the support. Thanks, everybody else. And we will catch you on the next episode, guys. Take care. Yeah.